Medina, and I'm the preaching minister at the Tri-Valley Church of Christ. And it's good to be here in Smothers Theater. The last time that I did a presentation in Smothers Theater was in 2003. It was way back when I was a student here at Pepperdine, and I was part of a Songfest group, a spring variety show. We, we did a musical number. Our group did our best rendition of Peter Pan. And uh, naturally, I was cast in the role of Tinkerbell. <laughs> True story, tutu, tights, prancing around on the stage, and we did a good job. But I already feel like, even now, this is going better than that because I remember to wear pants this morning. So you're welcome, Smothers Theater, to get a panted preacher. One of the services I provide. <laughs> this morning we're going to be talking about David and Mephibosheth. You may hear that name and go, oh yeah, Mephibosheth. Or you may hear that name and go, uh, Mephibosheth? Uh, I don't know that story. I'm not sure about Mephibosheth. And some people pronounce his name differently. You may have grown up hearing his name, Mephibosheth. I've also heard a few variations of how to pronounce it, but I say Mephibosheth, and so will you. <laughs> so I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, Mephibosheth. <laughs> Very good. Now turn to the person on the other side of you and say, that sounds like the right way to say his name. <laughs> good. We are all on the same page with that. Got that out of the way. That, it doesn't really matter how you say his name. One thing is for sure, your smartphone will not have any idea what you're talking about when you say Mephibosheth. Uh, over the course of preparing for this talk, I've said the name Mephibosheth to my, my voice recognition feature. And as you can see, he gets it wrong more often than not. Mephibosheth, it's a swing and a miss. Most favorite chef, I don't know why it's wanting me to, to talk about a chef. I don't wish to. Matthew Bosher, I think I went to high school with that guy. Uh, I don't know. Method potion, finish that, mess up a shift. You're fired, Siri. So some people are worried about artificial intelligence and you know, computers taking over our, our lives. As long as this is happening on my smartphone, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I think we're going to be in good shape. But you know, it doesn't really matter how you say his name, because in Mephibosheth's time, nobody said his name. Nobody knew his name because Mephibosheth was a nobody. He was nothing. He wasn't on the radar. He was the forgotten son of Jonathan, and he was dropped by his nurse as a child. And he was crippled. Couldn't, both of his legs didn't work. He couldn't walk. The reason that he was crippled is because after Saul and Jonathan were killed, the nurse was concerned that now David's people were going to come after the descendants of Saul so that nobody would rise up and, and try to challenge his kingship. So she scooped him up, and in her haste, she dropped him, and he became crippled. And that was Mephibosheth. The rest of his life was spent in a nothing place. He grew up living in a crummy little town called Lo-Debar, which is a name that could be translated not farmable. Where I'm from, up in Northern California, we translated Modesto. <laughs> He's got no influence. 
He's got no friends. He's a crippled fugitive living out in a desperate place, driven out, forgotten, nobody. David, on the other hand, as we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he's finally starting to become the somebody that he was destined to be. At this point, Saul is dead. The Philistines have been subdued. The Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. It seemed that God truly was building a house for David. So as he sits on top of the world, David remembers something. He remembers a covenant that he made with his dear friend, Jonathan. Are we going to do something? Didn't I promise you something? Oh yeah, I said I would always show kindness to the house of Saul. And so he's sitting and he says, are there any of the descendants left? Any of Saul's people that I can show kindness to? And the people that are around him say, no, not really. I don't think that's a problem anymore. Oh, you know what? There's that one guy. What's his name? You know, Modesto guy. I think he's still out there. They don't use his name as they're recalling his existence. And David says, him, I want you to bring him to me. And this is where Mephibosheth comes back on stage. So I want you to listen now to this beautiful story of love, generosity, and restoration. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. You will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, well, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, Grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Isn't that good news for Mephibosheth? Just like that, Mephibosheth goes from nobody to somebody. From rejected to restored. From lost to found. He is carried to the table of the king. Does that story sound familiar to any of us at this point? like something that maybe we've experienced. We love this story here in 2 Samuel chapter 9 because this is our story of being found in Christ. Is it not? It's the story of a broken person who is sought out by the king and shown mercy. It's the story of someone who can't hide from their shame or do anything to change their situation but yet is called by name, is loved by the king and given a seat at the table, a place in the family, an assurance well-being for the rest of his life. Mephibosheth is like us. And Ziba, the servant here in the story, well, he's kind of like the church. He's the one who carries out the will of the master. And David, David here reminds us of Jesus, our Savior, the generous and benevolent King. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for this reminder. Thank you so much for the mercy that you have shown to us. We thank you. We praise you for this gift that you have given us. We love you. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
different than the chapter 9 version. It's not quite the happily ever after version that we ended with before. Seems like what we heard in chapter 9 was the Caleb version of the story, and this broader view is a little bit more complex. Mephibosheth comes to David. He doesn't flee. He doesn't hide. He goes to the king, and he pleads his case, and David essentially says, you know what? I don't care. Whatever. You two, figure it out. Do what you want to do. I'm tired, and I'm just I'm going home. That's a little bit surprising. What about David's concern that he had for Mephibosheth? What about this covenant he made with Jonathan? What about his generosity and leadership that he showed back in chapter 9? And there's some unanswered questions here, too. Is Ziba telling the truth? Was Mephibosheth really going to stay in Jerusalem and try to get some power back? Or Mephibosheth lying? Is, whose story are we supposed to believe? We don't really get answers to those questions. But, since they divided the inheritance, one man is being dishonest. And somebody is getting something that they don't deserve. And that doesn't sound like justice to me. Chapter 9 is starting to sound a lot more idealistic. And chapter 19 is starting to sound a lot more like real life. And does it hit a little bit too close to home if I say that chapter 19 is starting to sound more like our churches? Where people promise things but then don't follow through? Where people take things? Where people who are supposed to look out for you let you down? Where people's actions don't line up with their words and you don't really know if you're getting the whole story? Is that just me or does that sound When I first started in full-time ministry, one of my ministry mentors gave me a little piece of advice. He says, Jacob, in ministry, you are never going to get the whole story. People will tell you things, they'll confide in you, you'll hear more than most people, but you're never going to get all of the details. They'll only tell you the details they want you to know, and there's going to be things that you find out or you don't, but that are kept from you. And in these last 10 years, But some days in ministry, I don't even want to know the whole story. If I'm honest, I just I want to pretend like I didn't hear certain things. Somebody will share something with me, or you, you find something out, and you're like, no, 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 la, 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 no, no. But you can't unring that bell. Anybody with me? If this is just me venting, then you guys are going to have to send me a bill for this therapy session. But I have a feeling that I'm not alone. Other people that experience this as well. I think there's a lot of people slugging it out in Lodabar. And can we be honest and say, ministry's hard. And the things that you hear and the things that you deal with are a weight that sometimes you bear by yourself. If you don't already know this, I want you to hear this. People who are members of congregations, spouses of ministers, anybody who can hear this, ministers have to carry secrets. Ministers keep confidences. And you know this. It's not just ministers. It's anybody who's trying to do the work of the Lord. There's certain things that you can't share. There's people you can't turn to and say, I, I just need to have a conversation about this because I've been carrying this by myself. It's a heavy load. So I come to Harbor and I hear people like Chris Smith tell me, you need to take a step forward and not a step back. You need to stop being such a coward, Jacob. And I go, amen. Are right. And I hear Sarah Barton say, we need to raise the roof. I want to go home and do just that. But you know what happens 
go back to the edges. You don't you remember what you go back to, and you're like, oh. you get weighed down by it. I'm not saying it's right, I'm not making an excuse for what I plan on doing. <laughs> but this is my experience. And if I'm really honest with myself, I sometimes just want to stay in chapter nine. Because chapter nine is great. Chapter 9 is where everything works out. Chapter 9 is the wedding reception. Chapter 19 is the marriage counseling. <laughs> Chapter 19 is the last night of camp. Yes. Chapter 19 is going back to school in the fall. Chapter 9 is like your first day of your brand new job. Chapter 19 is like the second day of your brand new job. <laughs> realities of life can wear you down. Like David in this story, it can make you tired and uncaring. It's easy to love Mephibosheth when you're on top of the world and everything is going your way. But when things are spiraling out of control, when you're experiencing the real-life consequences of your own bad choices, that's when you find out who you really are. At this point, you guys are like, ugh. guys uh, an ugly page out of Jacob's whole story. 
I was a student here at Pepperdine University the day that the airplanes hit the World Trade Center towers. September 11, 2001. I was going from my dorms down to where I worked in the intramural office, and I stopped in at the Hawk Student Center that's right back here. And I watched on live television as the second plane hit the second tower. That was a crazy day. And I was upset that day, as were a lot of people. But I wasn't upset because of the loss of life. I wasn't as upset about the people who were hurt. I wasn't upset out of concern for our country. On September 11, 2001, I had concert tickets to a show at the House of Blues in Hollywood. The whole city was shut down, and they canceled my concert. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I was more upset about that less of a selfish person? Maybe. Give you a more recent page of a story of Jacob's whole truth. My wife and I, we had our fourth child about seven weeks ago. Beautiful baby girl. What a joy. What a blessing. It's been awesome. I, I love her. My wife, Lisa, is amazing. She's caring for the, the baby. She's, she's nursing. She went back after two or three weeks and taught women's class at our church. People were like, whoa, you've got a baby. You don't need to be doing all that stuff. She's awesome. I should be loving her. I should be supporting her. I should be helping her. The whole family is pulling together to contribute and do what needs to be done. But Jacob's whole story has a part in it that says, the first couple weeks that the baby was home, you know what the thought that went through my mind more than any other thought was? When do I get to have sex again? writes about leaning in to the humanness of Jesus, 
he talks about it even as the day, the parts that we don't like, the parts that we want to sweep under the rug. He says, you need to be okay with humanity. Understanding the humanity of David will help you understand the humanity of Jesus. It will give you a better relationship with your own humanity. He says, if we're going to get the most out of, Jesus, out of the Jesus story, we first need to soak our imaginations in the David story. The entire meaning of the incarnation is that God enters our human condition, embraces it, comes to where we are to save us. Jesus has to be the hero of this story. Not Jacob, not Mephibosheth, not Ziba, and not even David. Because Jesus is not the selfish child that Jacob is. Jesus does not have ambiguous loyalties like Mephibosheth. Jesus does not use his relationships with people for his own advantage like Ziba did. And Jesus does not go back on his promises, and he does not run out of energy the way that David did. Jesus not only reconciles us with God the Father, but he also reconciles the tension between divinity and humanity, between heaven and earth, between the ideal and the actual, between chapter 9 and chapter 19. Because Jesus himself experienced chapter 19, and yet he still offers us chapter 9. Beautiful story of love, generosity, and restoration. So while we live in chapter 19, we hope in chapter 9. And both parts are true. Both of those are part of the whole story. And we need to keep these two stories in tension. We need to have glass half empty people in our churches, and we need glass half full people. We need summer Christians winter Christians. We need K-Love and we need K-Rock. And some of the teenagers in my church would say we need K-Pop, but I don't know if I'm willing to go that far down that road. Chapter 19, Christians keep it real. Chapter 9, Christians keep the vision. So while our broad view of the story of David and Mephibosheth reveals the often avoided truth that life is complex and messy and imperfect, Chapter 9 points us to a simple, old truth, that God loved us so much, and that he sent his one and only son, that any of us complex, messy, imperfect human beings who believe in him will not be lost, but will have eternal life. Chapter 9 points us to the truth that like Mephibosheth, we have been carried to the table. And that's where I want to end this morning share a song with you called Carry to the Table by a group called Leland. This song's become really special for me lately because most days I get the privilege of rocking my one and a half year old daughter Rita to sleep at night. I give her her bottle, we sit in the rocking chair, sing a few songs, I sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, I sing You Are My Sunshine. Sometimes she'll lift her sleepy head off my shoulder Feeling lost and all alone. 
Carried to the table. 